Welcome to Friends of Fire, the podcast that bridges the gap between fire science research and natural resource management. My name is Marinelle Armstrong, Outreach Specialist with Southern Fire Exchange, and in this episode, we'll be picking up where we left off from part one of our discussion with Jay Cantrell and Dr. Michael Chamberlain on prescribed fire and wild turkeys. In the last episode, we ended by discussing how turkeys mostly use the edge of burn units and how that can present a challenge to managers who are responsible for large tracts of land. Jay, what are some other challenges you faced in managing turkey habitat? Well, <laughs> there's, there's a, so many. We'll just kind of start from a, from a fire standpoint. As, as Mike kind of mentioned, you know, every, every site is different. Every year is different. You know, weather changes. And, and, and I've been fortunate, I think, to, to work on properties where we've had to worry less about smoke management and, you know, and had a lot of good burn days, but just in general, from a manager standpoint, you know, there's, there's only so many days to, to put fire on the ground. And, and that seems to be getting more and more difficult every year. Just getting enough fire out there is, is a challenge. You know, I think a lot of times fire gets uh, a bad name with turkeys and there's a contingent of people who think that we're burning up all the turkey nest and burning up pole. But in general, it's, it's probably the opposite, you know, that we're not getting enough fire on the ground. So that, that's the challenge, you know, really is getting enough out there and then and getting it in the, in the right form and fashion as, as, as Mike mentioned, you know, you want as small a burn block as possible, as much patchwork as possible. So that's, that's what most managers are up against uh, from a habitat standpoint is putting enough fire on the ground and, and getting it at the right level and scale. You know, I think, how you combat that is just to try to have as many burn days as possible. And, and we were just mentioning heterogeneity across larger blocks. And that's one thing, you know, on a, on a day when it might not be the greatest conditions from a, say a block, really kind of what somebody might say, cleaning up uh, and, and really burning black, you know, from edge to edge, that, that could be a good thing. I know as a, as a fire manager and a burner, you know, we always want to, get the whole block to burn and, and push fire into places it doesn't want to go. Uh, and, and you really have to get out of that mindset and, and let the fire go where it wants to go and, and leave some unburned areas and some of that mosaic. So a lot of times you have to kind of get away from, from old habits and, and what we think looks good from our human eye to, to what is best for the, the habitat and the wildlife. But, you know, challenging habitat wise, it's just, it's just tough to get good nesting habitat close to good brood rearing habitat sometimes as Mike mentioned those things are so critical you know you have to have those the juxtaposition of brood rearing and nesting habitat in, in close proximity you know that's that's tough you know there's there's times you may have to create openings or, or break blocks up so you know there's there's logistical things that and challenges and with budgets and money and, and what you're allowed to do to to try to, try to create openings or put in breaks and increase burn block um, in general, turkeys are a challenge to manage just because so many things want to eat them. So, you know, we're always trying to kind of provide them the best habitat to where they have to move the least on the landscape and they can get as much as they can eat as possible. And, and we're not encouraging predators. So that's where fire comes in. You know, as, as Mike mentioned, it was these things get past uh, three or four years, you're really starting to create predator, predator habitat more than, than turkey habitat. 
I think like a lot of things, it's just getting enough fire on the ground. And, and some years that, that can be challenging if it's too wet or too dry, or if you're not getting your right winds to, to send your smoke the right way. So just, uh, you know, make everybody a, every day a burn day if you can. Yep. Every day is a burn day somewhere. I want to go back to something you mentioned at the beginning, that there are still some perceptions out there that prescribed fire has a, a negative influence on wild turkeys. When I worked on a fire crew in South Georgia, we often heard concern from turkey hunters when we were burning during the growing season that we were burning up turkey nests. And I think that some people attributed the recent population declines to the increased use in growing season fires, even though now we know that that's not the problem. It was, as Mike mentioned, that kind of death by a thousand cuts from habitat degradation, fragmentation, etc. Do you think that there's been any change in public perception when it comes to prescribed fire in turkeys as the research has advanced? Well, you're absolutely right, and that, that is one of the challenges we, we face is that, that large public perception, you know, I think, um, has there been changes in a good way or bad way? Probably some of both, you know, I think we, we have informed and educated some people that now realize that growing season fires do have their place in Turkey management, but you know, there's, there's been probably just as much to the negative, you know, there's been, I think social media has, has really hurt us. You know, we see, you know, you'll see one picture of a burned up nest that gets recirculated and, and, and sent around the, the Southeast attributed to being everywhere from South Carolina to Alabama to Tennessee, you know, and, and one or two bad cases get blown out of proportion and people have a misconception that, that we're burning up all the, the nest. So yeah, we're up against a, a real battle of public perception there. And, and it's just a lot of misinformation. You know, I personally burn in, you know, thousands of acres and, and we burned there and growing season, nesting season, and, and we just didn't see a loss of nest. You know, when we were burning during a research project with monitored hens on the ground, we, we never burned up a, a nest with a monitored hen. And, and I think Mike can speak to to numbers across the Southeast with research projects he's done and been involved with. And, and it's a very low number of nests that we're actually burning just because what we previously mentioned was when you get into past about three years, the birds in general just aren't there as far as during the nesting season. And, and that's what we're burning. And that's the, the big point I try to make to people is the things that we're burning, the, the blocks that we're burning, particularly in the growing season, turkeys aren't nesting in those blocks. That habitat has gotten to a point where it's not good nesting habitat anymore. And that's why we're in there burning it at that point in time, you know, and speaking to what I said a minute ago too, we're, we're, there's so many challenges to being able to get enough fire on the ground that if you take out that growing season, it, it really limits how many acres you can get burned in a year. So we need to have as long of a fire season as possible. And that means some of that's going to happen during the nesting season. And there's a lot of benefits to growing season fire that, you know, that's a whole nother podcast, but you know, there's definitely some benefits. We want to see some growing season fire. We want to see some dormant season fire that again, adds to some of that diversity because you can burn the same block at different times of the year and get a completely different vegetative response. So when we're looking for good nesting habitat or good brood rearing habitat, you know, sometimes we want to put fire on the ground during that time. And, and I've seen, uh, growing season fire turn into 
great brood habitat for that year. You know, you burn something in the first of April and mid May, it's, it's just ideal, a flush of green growth and, and, and watch, you know, hens take poults in there and, and just flock to those areas. So, but yeah, it's a, it's a challenge. There's a lot of misinformation and misunderstanding, but when you really look at the numbers and the data and the research, we're, we're just not burning up that many nests. There are a few, but the, the overall habitat benefit and the long-term benefit to the bird far outweighs the small short-term loss of a few nests that probably were going to be lost to predation anyway, because they were probably in, in poor habitat that was inundated with predators. So, but yeah, it's, that's probably one of the big things we're up against with, with fire and turkeys is to overcome this misnomer that, that we're burning up all these nests. And I tell people too, look at, look, just look at the numbers and look at the data and there's not that much growing season fire nesting season fire on the ground anyway. And, you know, it's such a small percentage of the, the landscape that's getting burned during that time of year. And, and there's places, you know, when people want to blame the decline on that, I mean, there's, there's whole counties that see zero fire and they're seeing the same decline. So if anything, we have not enough fire on the ground, even during the growing season. I will say though, as a manager, I mean, we try not to concentrate on that time of year. I mean, we, we try to be very strategic and, and about where we're burning during the nesting season. And, you know, it's not just throwing fire out there as much as possible. I mean, we're, it's, it's as with all fire, it's strategic, it's planned, it's orchestrated. It has a clear objective and purpose. We want to see as many birds out there as possible. We're, we're doing it to manage the habitat for them. The last thing we want to do is burn them up. So if it was detrimental, it would not be something that, that we would be doing. Right. Mike, do you have anything to add pertaining to what the research says about the effect season of burn has on wild turkey reproductive success and their habitat? Yeah, we we don't lose. We, we've monitored, I mentioned this previously, well over 600 nests uh, on, oh gosh, I think nine different study sites now that, that are managed with fire. And we we have lost about seven to to prescribe fire uh, there were an, an equal number that would have been impacted by fire had they not been depredated before the fire event but even collectively if you if you look at that we're talking a dozen out of 650 plus and, and the reason is pretty simple first birds don't they typically aren't nesting in stands that are scheduled to be burned you know, back to this, this notion that they're really attracted to these stands the year they're burned, the year after they're burned, and two years after they're burned. Once you start going beyond that, you start getting into a situation where they're not really using that as, as reproductive habitat. Now, you know, Jay mentioned social media, and, and I, I post on social media all the time, and I, I, I see, I know the power of that of that instrument. But in reality, very little of the south and east is managed with fire and even less is managed with growing season fire. But inevitably what happens is you you see, uh, 
I remember two years ago, a, a 4,000 acre burn that occurred the first week of May. And that is way too large for, to, to be considered wise application of fire if, if turkeys or many other species are of interest. Or nests lost in that fire event, absolutely. We, we documented a number of nests that were lost. But if you're using fire in a way that's commensurate with this bird's ecology, which we've talked about those things, you know, a, a, um, a routine, a, a fire return interval that is, that's consistent, that's this, this patchwork where scale is not, you know, thousands of acres, but measured in hundreds of acres, then you may lose an occasional nest. But as Jay mentioned, and he's spot on, but the net benefit to this bird of those fire events far, far outweighs the loss of a single nest. We, we can't manage this bird being concerned with a loss of a, of a nest. What we have to be aware of is that the vegetation that this bird thrives on must be created in many situations with fire. And losing a nest is not, it's not a catastrophe. I, I, I understand the sentiment and I, under, I don't want nests to be lost, but also am cognizant of the fact that if we don't use fire and use it wisely, uh, on many of our landscapes where fire management is important, we're, we're not going to have good populations of wild turkeys and, and many other species that, that are adapted to those same plant communities. Um, the other thing I would say is that we, we, don't, we don't really see a, a lot of nest loss and we also don't see that nest being impacted by fire necessarily cause nest loss. And, and what I mean by that is we, we have a number of examples where a stand was burned and for whatever reasons, whether there were fire shadows or, or other um, issues that caused the fire not to reach certain nest sites, those nests hatched. So it's not just as simple as, well, if you light this stand on fire, there's a nest in it, it's gone. It, it's a little more complicated than that, but kind of the take home is on properties where fire is, is managed, uh, as fire is used to manage stands in a consistent way with return intervals that are, that, that are commensurate with a bird, say two to three years, we see very little, very little nest loss from fire. Well, that's really good to hear that in reality, very few nests are actually lost to fire. So earlier we mentioned the challenge of having a limited number of good burn days. Mike, I was wondering if you could speak on what you know about the potential impacts climate change may have on wild turkeys. Yeah, that, that is a really tough question. We don't, we don't know. We, we actually have some ongoing work that, that is uh, using a postdoctoral researcher that will start trying to tease out some of the, the climate change issues relative to, to reproduction. And so the, so the short answer is we don't know with certainty. Logic dictates that there would certainly be some potential impacts of, of changing climate and this bird. Jay mentioned something that, 
that I hope doesn't get lost in in the, the discussion we've had a, a number of minutes ago, but he said, make every day a burn day. And that to me, as we as we see the potential that burn days during certain times of the year are becoming limited. Uh, he mentioned, you know, wind, precipitation. I personally see that many burn managers get caught in a rut where they've always done it like this. They've always, we've always burned, and I'm guilty of this too, we've always burned from February till March 15th or, or whatever, you, you, you pick the dates. And suddenly we realize that for whatever reason, we're unable to do that this year. Well, you know what, what about in September? Well, there's smoke issues and there's heat issues. Yeah, I, I, I get all that. But we're going to have to be a little more creative and flexible, in my opinion, if we're going to continue using fire in a way that that helps manage our landscapes, we may have to face the recognition that the ways we've done it may not be the ways we can continue to do it in, in a way where we can appropriately manage the landscape like we could 20 years ago. Maybe we're going to have to be a little more flexible. Would would changes in those fire regimes cause changes in vegetation? Yes, we know that. There's there's research clearly showing that the timing does matter, whether it's a, a fall burn or, or you know a late winter burn or a growing season fire, that all matters. But I think as as we face the climate change issue, we're going to have to be more flexible. I think that's kind of the take home in my in my eyes. Yeah, I agree. It's becoming more and more essential to take advantage of every possible burn day. And yeah, we'll probably have to be more flexible in what we consider possible burn days when it comes to time of year and weather conditions. So switching gears a bit, because the central goal of Southern Fire Exchange is to help connect researchers and land managers, we're always interested in learning about the collaborations that are already going on and what challenges remain that are preventing more extensive cooperation. So Mike, do you ever work directly with land managers when coming up with research questions or collecting data for these projects? Absolutely. In fact, unlike some researchers, um, and I'm not casting shade on any anyone for sure here, but most of my work is actually agency driven. It, it's I don't do a lot of research that is this kind of um, basic type science. I mean, most of the work I do is applied. And what I mean by that is the agency comes to me with a question that is relevant to them and, and, and ergo it's relevant to the stakeholders of that agency. So I would say nearly all of my work stems from interactions of of which you just described. The, the agency, the, the stakeholders come to the researcher, me, with a question and say, this is important to us and the people that pay the bills in this state, therefore we want some answers. And so most of my work is, is entirely agency driven, for sure. That's awesome. I think that there's a lot of value in that kind of cooperation. There's certainly more communication and direct use of the research. 
So then what are some of the challenges you faced when integrating managers into the research process? And what are some strategies to overcome them? Oh, yeah. So the challenges, I think one of the big challenges that I face, and unfortunately, it's just an artifact of the way that we do business, is that by the time a question is asked, we want the answer three days ago. We're, we're, the, we're in this instant gratification type framework these days. And, and I get it, there's a sense of urgency with, with research questions. And so that's the big challenge. I, I'd say one of the biggest challenges that I face is that by the time the agency approaches me, we're collectively discussing questions that are already problematic. And therefore, answers are critical. And, and that, as, as most people know, that's not really the way science works. It's, it's an evolving process. There's roadblocks. You know, we're, we're living in a society right now that is a manifestation of, of that point right there, is that science evolves often slower than we would want. And when you're dealing with, with wild animals, in this case, turkeys, they don't cooperate all the time. So, you know, they, I call them unwilling participants. They don't want to be captured. They don't want to be monitored. They, you know, they're happy if we don't do that to them. So we're influenced by their tendency to be elusive. We don't always end up with the answers we want right out of the box. Therefore, we it takes longer to provide some of the information that we provide. And I'll give you an example that the, the firework that I've done, you know, we're in 2020 right now. I started that work in 2014 and it took us uh, five years to get enough information to where we felt comfortable with disseminating it to people because I wouldn't have felt comfortable with a couple hundred nests. I mean, 500, yes. Uh, you know, we, we have a sample size that's large enough now where I, I think what we're providing the agencies is, it's not bulletproof, but it's it's solid. The, the inferences are solid and they're, they're justified. So that's the challenges. The kind of the strategies to overcome them is, you know, Jay can speak to this, but beg and plead, <laughs> give me time, give me time, you know is really just communication with the agency, communication with the stakeholders, letting people understand that we're working on this. We, 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 we hear what you're saying. We know your concern. We're trying our best to get answers as quickly as possible. In my opinion, if you communicate well with people and make sure they understand that you're in this to win this, if you will, that we, we're going to provide answers, we're working on it, then the stakeholders that push the agency agenda, they're, they're, they're not always satisfied with that answer, but they recognize that we're in this together and, and we can kind of overcome some of those, those challenges. Uh, Jay has a whole nother set of challenges. As an agency uh, person, he deals with things that I don't have to deal with as an academic, um, thankfully, but those are kind of the challenges that I face on my end. And Jay, um, it sounds like you have a lot of experience working with the science. Have you worked with researchers on wild turkey management projects? 
Oh, yes, absolutely. And and as I kind of mentioned early on, that was kind of my start into really getting more focused on on turkeys was when we, we started a uh, multi-year in-depth research project in South Carolina with, with Dr. Brett Collier, who works along with, with Mike on a lot of projects. And, and actually, the project we did, they kind of shared a lot of the data because it's part of a Southeastern data set. So worked on a, on several projects now uh, with some different universities and Mike was right. You know, there's, there's a lot of challenges on both sides, but there's a lot of benefits for the agency. There's a lot of benefits for hunters. There's a lot of benefits for the students involved in the research. So it's, it's been very um, eye opening, you know, and I've learned a lot about, uh, the science and, and the biology and, and, and the aspects of research that go into it. But, uh, you know, as far as kind of hitting off what, what Mike said, you know, some of the same things, yeah, communication in those projects is key on both sides, you know, as a, as a manager, you need to, to have a, an open mind, a curious mind, ask a lot of questions, uh, because as he mentioned, you know, most of the research we're involved with now is, is applied research. It's not science for just the sake of science. You know, it's science to ask or to answer a question and to deal with a problem. So they need to know what, what our problems are and what our questions are and, and what our, you know, stakeholders and constituents want to know or what we're up against. So, you know, you have to communicate those things well. And as he kind of alluded to, you know, we have to be patient science takes time and, and we have a lot of pressure on us from, you know, whether it be legislators or board members or commissioners, depending on your state and, and hunters and conservation groups. And a lot of people wanting answers to questions that, as he said, we don't often have a lot of times the, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of desire to, to get a question answered uh, before the research even gets done. And so we have to kind of keep, pushing people off and letting people know we're working on it. You can't just get one year's worth of data and, and draw conclusions. You know, we have to have good data sets with, with a lot of, you know, a large sample size and, and multiple years of analysis because every year is a little different and you need to look at things over a, a, a period of time. So that's a challenge is, is for us to be patient, for us to keep the people that are, that employ us and, and, and uh, oversee us to be patient. And then funding is always a big, big problem. As, as he mentioned, you know, a lot of this is agency funded and, you know, where that money is coming from can be a challenge. And so uh, some states are in better shape than others. You know, we have to, to come up with a, a source of funds to pay for the research. And a lot of this stuff is not, not cheap, you know, to the level of science that we're at now, uh, like with turkeys, with, GPS transmitters on birds and the cost of, of those units and, and the analysis, it's, uh, it's expensive work and, and it's difficult sometimes to, to catch birds and actually get, get your hands on. So, uh, you know, we have some challenges there and, and that's something that a lot of times just takes time and staff. And, and sometimes those are very limited. You know, we, a lot of times we're trying to do other, we have other, other jobs as we like to say, you know, we're not just researchers. We're trying to manage habitats or manage public hunting opportunities or, or things of that nature. So to find the, the time to, uh, to get out and help on the ground with, with getting birds caught and, and equipped with 
with transmitters or bands or whatnot is uh is a challenge but it's fun it's the it's the work we like to do i mean if anybody who's a biologist or a wildlife technician you know you ask them and, and they love to put their hands on critters so we enjoy doing it but uh it's definitely something else on the list to do but you know and one of the big challenges we face too with the research is when the research is done is is how do you properly share that information you know it doesn't do us any good to uh to do this science and work with these people if we're not getting that word out there so a lot of times you know it's it's uh the outreach on the on the back end and, and kind of translating from the the science to uh to something in in a more digestible form you know layman's term so to speak and that's that's always tough for us you know it's, it's to slow down enough to know, okay, we did this great work, but now we got to make sure people know about it. And, and uh, you know, what questions did we answer and what, what questions did we uncover that we need to answer going forward? So, uh, but it's fun. I, I tell you, I've enjoyed my time working with researchers. I encourage any manager to do it. You know, if you can just uh, you might have to be creative and, and take some, opportunities where they come and if you can make it happen it's a great way to uh you know learn more about the birds or or whatever wildlife you're working with and you know get some good good answers as, as mike mentioned you know this society right now science is often doubted but uh it's really the only the only good answer we have for a lot of these questions so yeah and science communication as you mentioned is huge and that's one of the reasons for this podcast that we're starting is um, to make science more accessible to more people. And I'm also working on a wild turkeys and prescribed fire fact sheet right now. That's great. Yeah, absolutely. That's the biggest challenge, you know, is, is, is we've got a lot of good information and we're continuing to get more, but we have to make sure we, we get it out in, in forms, uh, media forms to where people can, can ex access it and, uh, and digest it and understand it. Exactly. Research presented as a journal article really only goes so far, but when we can synthesize that information and target specific audiences so that it's more digestible, that research is much more available to the people who are interested. So as a manager, what future research would be beneficial to you? What are some big questions that are still unanswered? I think Mike kind of alluded to some of these earlier when he was talking, but you know, there's, there's a few things, as, as he mentioned, there's so many things working against turkeys. There's still a lot to be learned from a disease standpoint. And we, we know that turkeys get a lot of diseases and parasites and, and, you know, viral infections, bacterial infections, but we don't really know the, the impacts. You know, we know that in general, most of those don't outright kill a bird, you know, as far as mortality events associated with them, it's pretty low, but is there something there in the background, you know, or some of these viruses or diseases affecting the, the fitness of the bird? You know, is it decreasing the reproductive output? Is it decreasing their ability to avoid predation, things of that nature? So I think, you know, there's definitely some need for some disease, you know, continued disease research. As Mike mentioned, the harvest effects, that's something that that we continue to kind of struggle with is how much impact uh, are we having as hunters on these birds as far as the, the timing and level of, of harvest. Uh, and that's, that research is, is 
being done and ongoing, but there there's needs to be more of that. You know, I think there's a lot of things, you know, predators, uh, the, the predator prey interaction with, with turkeys and their predators. There's so many things out there that want to eat a turkey from the time they're an egg to a poult to an adult. You know, I think we need to, to delve into a little bit more of that and those relationships and, and maybe what on a habitat level is impacting predator numbers, whether it be prescribed fire, whether it be supplemental feeding, whether it be timber management, ag field management, you know, what out there on the landscape is, is driving these predator numbers and, and how is that interacting with, with turkeys? You know, I think there's probably some opportunities for entomologists and biologists to get together and look at some of the insect communities. I mean, that insects are critical for turkeys, uh, particularly poults and their survival. So, you know, maybe we need to be looking at some things uh, insect driven, but uh, as we've been talking about today, there's so many factors that drive turkey populations and there's so many unanswered questions now. And, and I'm just encouraged that there's some folks doing good research and, and, and answering this, you know, there was a lot, there was kind of a, a lag in there when turkeys were doing well uh, and, and thriving in the, you know, seventies and eighties and nineties and to where there wasn't a tremendous amount of, turkey research there was some but you know there was a lot of other species getting the attention but i think fortunately now with the these declines uh, i mean it's it's unfortunate that we have declines but it has spurred a lot of interest and in, in research and and funding for research and and you know the academic folks want that wanting to work with us to, to try to answer some questions so keep asking questions and, and keep trying to get answers but i always say you know we, we answer one and create three more and like you said, it's a shame that this decline is happening, but it does seem to have sparked an increase in funding and general interest for researching wild turkeys and their interactions with their environment. And also an interest of land managers in learning how to care for their woods in a way that best benefits the species. Well, that concludes our segment for today. Thank you both for sharing your insights and experience on wild turkey management on Friends of Fire. Thank you. It was good being here. Yeah, enjoyed it. Support for this podcast comes from a grant from the Joint Fire Science Program. Special thanks to the University of Florida, Tall Timbers Research Station, and North Carolina State University. Music by David Bergen. If you would like to share your feedback from the show today, or if you have an idea for a future episode, email us at contactus at southernfireexchange.org.